Uh, I've heard it said before, and um, I think that we even have this in our nursing mom's room, that uh, why is it that we as Christians would choose to uh, decorate rooms, and especially children's rooms and things, with Noah's Ark? You know, this is a, an emblem of, of um, uh, salvation through horrific judgment. Uh, Tim Hawkins has even been, been uh, one to, to joke about, you know, if kids, parents are going to paint their Noah's Ark mural on their kids' walls, they should need to paint people clinging on to rocks and animals, feet up, floating by and things like this. This is, this is not the picture that, that uh, we are to have of serenity and, and, and peaceful uh, coasting across placid waters. But, but the fact is, is that it, this was a worldwide catastrophic experience that ushered in a new age or a new epoch of time in so many ways. The, the rest of the world was changed from that point forward and a new epoch began. Uh, first, it, be, it, be, it, was an, it ushered in a new age geologically in which the whole physical earth was affected and, was, and is evidencing today the flood that took place worldwide. And even giving our earth the appearance of age in many ways. And, and we'll be uh, sh- talking about that in our discussion times on Sunday evenings uh, at 6.30 if you're, if you're interested in coming out for that. But it also ushered in a new epoch anthropologically, which means um, having to do with people. Uh, think about the fact that every person's lineage from that point in time can be traced back to being related to that family that was saved from horrific judgment. And we can talk uh, this evening, I uh, can show you a chart of, of uh, different cultures from that point forward, and their stories of a flood and how so many of them carried on those themes that were a part of this biblical record. It also ushered ushered in a new epoch theologically in which from that point forward, we carry a story and we carry a narrative and we carry an experience and we look Two, and is it a part of our relationship with God in which His people are saved by His grace from a horrific universal judgment? Yeah, think about it. Saving grace was a new idea to this epic that opened with Noah's experience. Saved from judgment by God's unmerited favor. This is the first time in the scriptures that we would think of God's saving grace. Saving men and women from destruction. And so we'll pick back up in Genesis 6 starting in verse 1. I don't have the the words here on the screen here this morning but we do have Bibles in the back if you don't have one with you. If you don't have one at home, please take it home with you. You're welcome to that. But turn with me to Genesis 6, where we read, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, 
and they took their wives as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now, somebody who doesn't believe the biblical record might, might read this and say, what, what is this talking about? I mean, these things couldn't be. What, what are even spoken of here? This is like mythological stuff. But again, remember that, that the part of what defines an age that you live in, or more properly, the, the epoch that you live in of time, is that it is hard to understand an epoch that is different than yours. And so that's why the book of Genesis, so much of those beginnings of Genesis, are the beginnings of new epochs of time as they happen. And we, we need God to tell us what it was like. And so much of what's described here, we're limited to what he says. We'll kind of throw out some of those theories if you come back tonight at 6.30 to kind of, we kind of do kind of question and answer and let our curiosity kind of guide it. This is a describing an epoch that is a foreign to us. But we continue on in verse 5. We, what we do understand is the wickedness of man. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth and he grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. He is predicting a horrific judgment of the entire earth. But we see in verse 8 that it opens up and it, and, it, and it informs us of what this story begins with and is based in what is the foundation of Noah's relationship with God and that is that he's living in God's saving grace as we see in verse 8 that speaks into this moment but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. We should be able to understand this. Finding grace, finding grace, God's unmerited favor from God. We talked last week about how the Septuagint, which is the, the, when the Hebrews were, were translating the Hebrew Bible into Greek for those Hebrews that could not read uh, Hebrew, uh, that they translated this with the term that we understand from the New Testament, charis, which means grace. Noah found grace from God. Grace to be saved. Grace to live differently. Grace to have a different trajectory than the people that he was surrounded by. And this statement begins, I believe, the beginning, as Genesis is the book of beginnings, of a new epoch, a relationship with God, freedom from judgment, freedom from coming condemnation because of sin. So we continue on in the rest of our passage here that we read in verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. We'll come back to those statements. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. 
Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end to all flesh, an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. And this is how you will make, you will make it. The length of the ark is 300 cubits, and that's about 20 inches. So you're talking about um, a football and a half in length. Its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it within a cubit of above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, and second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. And those of us that went to the Ark Encounter last weekend, um, we kind of have these images really uh, fresh in our minds. Uh, here's a depiction of what the Ark would have looked like um, uh, those gray things on the ramp are elephants uh, coming up to that third level where the, the door is there. Uh, we have another picture here of Jeff standing at the end of the ark, amazed with hand, hand, hands on his head there of its size, I guess. There's somebody actually standing behind him underneath the front of it as, as Answers in Genesis um, has quite scientifically laid out how this, the ark could have looked, but we do know uh, 450, uh, 500 feet long is what we're talking here. We'll continue on in our, in our passage here. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark and your sons, your wife, your son's wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female of the birds according to their kinds and of the animals according to their kinds and of every living thing, creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Then we read in verse 22, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Then we'll read the first five verses of chapter 7. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and the pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and of his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all of the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And verse 5 finishes with, And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. This ushers in a new experience for all of humanity. Think of this for, for a moment here. All of humanity 
from Noah's family forward carries with it this experience of being saved from horrific judgment. And it makes its way into several other ancient histories as I've spoken about and we'll, we'll share about tonight. You know, I lived in the, we lived in the Black Hills in Rapid City uh, prior to moving here to, to pastor here at Harvest seven years ago. And so we lived in the Black Hills, and it didn't take me long to find out about this flood. I'm not talking about the flood of Genesis 6. I'm talking about the Black Hills flood of 1972. And, and it didn't take long to, to know that this flood impacted everyone that lived there at that time. If they were alive on June 9th, 1972, or if their parents were still there on June 9th, 1972, even if they were on high ground, everyone knew what happened. Everyone knew the impact. Everyone knew someone that had been lost or injured. It was one of the deadliest floods of U.S. history. Fifteen inches of rain had fallen in, the, in that few small amount of time. Canyon Lake Dam became clogged with debris and failed late in the evening hours of June 9th. The sweeping water killed 238 people, practically in their beds. It injured over 3,000 people. Over 1,300 homes and 5,000 cars were destroyed. The value of the property damage is estimated in 2018 numbers at $936 million. But what struck me from that, like I said, that began from that point forward in Rapid Cities and the Black Hills history. Everybody remembered that day. Everybody remembered where they were, if they were a part of it. And understand that humanity, from Noah's family forward, had a story of being saved by God's grace from horrific judgment. And we carry that story today, maybe not as much in a memory of a flood, but we carry that story. If you know Christ as your Savior, and maybe you're just, it's just registering for the first time here with you, but understand that Scripture tells us that the penalty, the condemnation for all of the sins of all of the world were not being poured out on mankind, but were being stored up. The spiritual penalty for sins were being stored up in, in like a huge reservoir with the dam straining and stressing for the penalty for all of sins for all of time. But rather than pouring them out on people, God poured them out on Jesus. He poured out the penalty for all of the sins of all of time all of the shame, all of the condemnation on his son, Jesus. So that through Jesus' death and resurrection, any of us can say, I want that forgiveness. I want that opportunity. I want that grace to live in relationship with God. This being saved by grace from horrific judgment, which Jesus absorbed should also be an experience for all of humanity to know. 
I want to challenge you, if you know Christ is your Savior, first of all, that in light of the living in God's saving grace, allow God to set your life apart. Allow God to set your life apart because that happened and you cannot but go on and live life changed from that point forward. In the same way, as we see in, in verse 9 of chapter 6, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. This is after the idea that we see that Noah found favor. He found grace from God. God didn't just show his saving grace to Noah. God was calling Noah to walk in relationship with him. These characteristics of being blameless and also walking with God, these are rarely used in the Old Testament to describe someone, rarely used together to describe someone in the Old Testament. But for gospel believers, it is not rare to expect that we would respond to the call to be set apart as a part of our responding to a grace relationship with God and finding salvation ourselves from horrific judgment. Ephesians 2 links the gift of eye-opening faith and undeserved grace to, to the fact that it leads us. It is a call to live our life in God-honoring works. Many of you are familiar with these verses. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God should be setting our lives apart. And, 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 Ephesians 1 through 3, those chapters tell amazing theology of God's saving grace. And they lead up to chapter uh, 4 where it is argued, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Just as Noah walked in a way that was worthy, if you will, having been shown a grace from God, We're also told, uh, while we could never be worthy of friendship with God, once we have received God's forgiving grace, Colossians 1.10 calls all believers to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work. Does that mean if God says, well, you're not worthy of me anymore, so you're out? No, we've received His grace. We've received relationship with Him. We've received His forgiveness, and therefore we are to walk based on that, live based on that. It reminds me of a scene from movie Saving Private Ryan, okay? And there's this, this group of, of uh, this company of soldiers that have been tasked with going and finding Private Ryan because his mom has lost his other brothers in World War II. And they've been given the task of bringing him out of the fight and sending him home so that his mom would not lose all of her sons. But you know what happens? Almost the entire group of men, led by their captain, gets lost in the process. And the captain, played by Tom Hanks, is, is laying there, shot up, and Private Ryan is one of the only ones that's still alive in the final moments of the movie, and he's going over there, and, and he's like, why would you do all of this for me? 
What's the last thing the captain says to him? Earn it. Earn it. Well, is he going to be able to even do enough to make all these guys to be worthy of losing their lives for him? Or, or is he going to go back in time and earn for them to be able to come and do this for him? Now, it's kind of an awkward way of saying it, but what he is saying is live your life from this point forward differently based on what has been done for you here. And that is what we are called to do as followers of Christ, saved by his grace, is to allow God to set our lives apart from the world around us. And how do we do that? First of all, don't gauge your life. Don't gauge your holiness by the unholiness of the world. Don't have this idea of, well, you know, the world's uh, immorality is at this level. As long as I keep it down here at this level, I'm okay. Secondly, when God convicts you of sin, repent and practice a repentance that's effective. Let me explain that to you. First, respond to the conviction. Yes, Lord, I see that. I hear you. I want to change. Two, replace the lies that you're believing in that area with truth. This is where good counsel comes in. This is where your shepherds here at Harvest come in or your small group leader or your believing friends that, that, that you can take that issue to them and say, I, I, I don't understand why this has built up for me. I'm responding to God's conviction about it. I need to see what lies I'm believing here. I need to replace them with truth. And thirdly, th- third step for effective repentance is repeat Repeat through accountability. Accountability allows you to put one step in front of another and grow. To have somebody helping you along. Thirdly, first, decide not to gauge your holiness by the unholiness of the world. Secondly, declare war on sin. Thirdly, live on gospel mission. Allow the gospel to be your mission. That is what God has called his children to be about. Allow God to reset the purpose of your life with his purposes of sharing the gospel with others, of living out the gospel before others. When we seek to live holy lives, we can definitely be tempted by pride must always recall that we have in a, a relationship with God. We grow in a relationship with God only by His grace. And we must know that His commitment to us is what keeps us in His grace. It's His, keep, his commitment, His special relationship with us. So I challenge you, rest in God's special relationship with you if you know Christ as your Savior. See, God is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. As we see in verse 18, I will establish my covenant with you, he tells Noah, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. See, a covenant is not a contract. A contract is saying, it it establishes a relationship in which two parties are promising to behave in a certain way as long as the other party keeps up their end of the agreement. That's why marriage is not a contract. Marriage is a covenant. A covenant is a relationship. It's an agreement or it's an established, it establishes a relationship that is promised regardless 
of the behavior of the other party. Probably one of the most popular ones from our history that you might not be aware of comes from the concluding line of the Declaration of Independence. Where it says, and for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge or covenant to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. That pledge or that covenant was regardless of what the other signers of that declaration did. They were covenanting whatever needed to come from their lives, their fortunes, their sacred honor. God would speak to Noah again about his covenant relationship with him in Genesis 9 where he says, Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your offspring after you. And we're promised in Jeremiah 31 that Jesus was going to bring a new covenant. A new covenant in Christ's blood. Jeremiah 31 describes it in this way. For this is the covenant that I will make. He goes on to say, I will be their God. They shall be my people. I will set my law within them. I will write my law on their hearts. Speaking of the Holy Spirit that will indwell God's people. Rather than just his directions, his instructions, his commandments being just uh, writing on paper or something outside of us, or something over us, that His Holy Spirit would be able to teach His children from within them. It says, And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his, each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. And I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This is what Luke is describing in Luke 22 that Jesus ushers in in the upper room in that first Lord's Supper. It says, and likewise the cup after they had eaten, Jesus took it and saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. That's what Jesus was ushering in, a covenant relationship between God's people and God based on God's grace and established in God's unbreakable commitment. It's what's talked about in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-five. It lists off in the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. We celebrate God's covenant relationship with us when we celebrate communion in Christ's blood. And Scripture describes us as being a part of God's family by adoption. By adoption. What adopted child is supposed to wake up any morning and be like, I wonder if I'm still adopted. I wonder if I'm still a son of this house. No. It's a covenant relationship in which People have pledged before God and the courts saying no matter how this child behaves, they're mine. They're mine. How do we rest in God's special relationship? First of all, resist the temptation to live like those who don't know God, who live like those who are not walking in a covenant relationship with God. Understand something. Sin erodes faith. 
Sin erodes assurance of that relationship with God. Sin creates a fog in that you get lost in, in which you can't find the gospel. You don't understand God's commitment to you. You don't understand, and all you're hearing are voices saying, you can never go back. Why would he ever love you? Why would you ever think that you're his? That's what sin does. Resist the temptation to legalism. Legalism promotes a contract relationship with God, not a covenant relationship with God. Legalism says God will keep his commitment to you as long as you show yourself worthy or as long as you keep your commitment to him. That doesn't allow you to rest in God's special relationship with his children. Thirdly, I want to challenge you. As Noah did, walk in faith and obedience. We're told twice, first in verse 22, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. In verse 5 of chapter 7, and Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah wasn't just a man of faith and holiness. He was a man of action, which is living in faith and holiness. We're reading of Hebrews eleven seven. By faith, Noah being warned about the... Co- Concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. This took a hundred years, a hundred years of action. And by this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Noah was acting in faith even when he entered the ark. Okay, I, I hold to the canopy theory that <clears throat> basically it had not rained on the earth prior, prior to this flood. And we can talk about that tonight if you want. Uh, and um, it's very, I, I believe Noah hadn't even seen rain. Okay, so Noah says, go in the ark in seven days, I'm going to send rain. Seven days. It didn't, didn't just spend 100 years. I guess by that time, if you spent 100 years building the thing, seven days is nothing to go inside of it and wait. Well, why did God do that? Go wait for seven days inside the ark. I don't know the answer to that. But as far as of Christ, we're called to live in faith and obedience. Jesus told us in John 14, if we love him, we will obey him and abide in his love. I'm sorry, that's John 15. We will abide in his love. We'll enjoy his love as we, as we obey him. And we obey him if we love him. And, th- and we're following Christ in his relationship with the Father. As we're told in John 8. And he says, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Jesus was a man of active obedience to the Father. Even his very coming to be our Savior was an act of obedience to the Father as is described in Philippians 2.8. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. To follow Christ is to walk in God's grace obeying God's command. In John 13, Jesus tells us, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. 
In Matthew 7, uh, Jesus tells us, uh, well, he doesn't tell a story. He compares walking in obedience to building a house. He says, if you hear my words and don't do them, it's like you're building a house, but you're building it on sand. And when the rain comes and when the flood rises, that house falls. But if you hear my words and you do them, you obey. You're like a person that's building his house on a rock. And when the rains come, because they come, and when the flood rises, that house will stand strong. You know, saying you believe something is very different than having conviction about it. To say, I believe this, is like saying, um, and, and belief matters, okay? But separate from conviction, belief would just be like what you would answer on a test. Is Jesus the Son of God? Yes. Did Jesus die for my sins? Yes. Um, should we be sharing the gospel with others? Yes. Conviction is what you do. It's obeying when it's uncomfortable. When you're risking ridicule. When it means sacrifice. That is what it means to have conviction about something. When you're looking at temptation and saying, I really, really think I can get my needs met there. To have conviction is to say, but God says no. And so I'm going to turn away from it. That's conviction. So, so we look back at this epoch of time told to us about in Genesis 6, and, and we have to be told about it. It's a different epoch than we live in. We don't understand it. But we also look ahead to an epoch that is coming that we don't understand completely. I mean, how many of you guys completely understand the book of Revelation? Do you, see, do you see why it is that, that we read and we're like, what in the world? It's because it is a different epoch of time, different from the one that we are living in. But we need to listen to it. We need to listen to what God has to say about it. You see, in Noah's flood, God judged the wicked with a severe cata- catastrophic event in order to start life with him over again for those saved by his grace. And as I mentioned, Noah, Noah, he's the poster child for this new epic saved from judgment by God's grace. He and his family. And God's people saved by grace look to his deliverance from future judgment as well. There is a judgment coming again. The Thessalonian church are, t- are described in this way. They're described as a church who turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. There is a wrath coming. There is a judgment coming again. And we know less than Noah have the opportunity to be saved by God's grace from that coming judgment. And scoffers about that are nothing new. People saying, what are you talking about? What is all of this? Haven't we been living in these last days ever since Jesus was on the earth? 
Haven't been people been saying, look for Christ's return, look for Christ's return for thousands of years? They are nothing new. In fact, Peter writes in 2 Peter 3, of those scoffers, they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the, by the word of God, and by and that by means of these, water and the word of God, the world and that then existed was deluged or flooded with water and perished. So these scoffers ignore this history. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up not for wire, water, but for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for the hastening of the coming day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise... We are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. You see, we have the opportunity today, as Noah did, to receive God's grace, to receive relationship with him, and to be saved from a coming judgment that the only thing that Scripture can compare it to is the flood that wiped out everything that lived on earth. But guess what? This coming judgment is going to be so destructive that it requires a remaking of the earth and a remaking of the heavens. And we're called no less than Noah to live a different life on this earth, to live in a sense of urgency. Urgency to walk with God on this earth. Urgency to walk on gospel mission. For the gospel to be our mission with our unsaved loved ones, our unsaved neighbors, our unsaved friends and family. Because once that deliverance comes to us, there is no more deliverance opportunity before judgment comes. And we should be, if you, no pun intended, on fire. Because fire is coming, just like the flood came. And we should be living differently because of it. Are you ready for it? Are you saved by God's grace? Because just as I'm sure in his day Noah was saying, there is a flood coming. There is a fire of judgment coming. And if you have not received Christ as your Savior, walking in relationship with him, you will not stand. And it is even more sad, it will lead to an eternal fire of hell that will make that moment of judgment on this earth look like child's play. Are you living as if it's coming? If you know Christ is your Savior, are you living as if that judgment is coming? Because it is. Just as it came in the days of Noah. Let's bow our heads. Father, I pray for each one of us here that wherever we stand with you,
that you would speak loud and clear to hearts and minds in this moment to know if they walk in relationship with you through Christ or not, if they are safe from coming judgment or not. But Lord, I pray that you would also convict us of apathy, convict us of of living like vanity fair. Because we know that just as in the days of Noah, judgment came while people were eating and drinking and celebrating. And it came on them like a flood. And you'll come no differently, Father. So I pray, Lord God, that you would quicken us to share your truth with others, to live differently because we know that these days are short. Lord, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.